Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. It's World War II Day today, so of course I am incredibly excited. And I've got Merrin with me today, who's my co-host, and she's going to tell us exactly who we're talking to. Hit it, Merrin, go for it. Okay, so today we are privileged to be talking to Baz Willems, who is a scholar of the Eastern Front. He focuses on the back end of the Second World War, really, Eastern Germany. And I know that um, previously he's been looking at the considerations of fighting in an urban environment. Baz, I've been doing some research on you while we've been talking. Um, And so I'm really looking forward to today's chat because we're going to explore all the things we really need to know about Russia and Kaliningrad and Königsberg. But before we get into that, I know you two know each other, don't you? Yes, is the short answer. We do. Yeah, like we, we met at a conference and, uh, yeah. That was, was a good conference. Yes, it was a very, very good conference. Uh, second World Research Group, so shout out to them. Exactly. Really, good, yeah. good shout out. But do you know what? Baz has just written a new book, and um, I'm, I, I love it. It's a great book. I'm really, really annoyed with him right now, like to the point that I, I want to throw a book at him, because reading some of these chapters, it's piqued my interest into um, the earlier period in what was happening in the area. So like all the slave labour and stuff. And I'm like, no, why, why, Baz? Why do you do this to me? Why? Yeah, I like. I think like Eastern Germany uh, is, is has been a little bit forgotten in uh, in, in the way that we look at uh, uh, like at the Nazi era, really. Like I think by now, Western uh, like West Germany and like East Germany, so the GDR and the DDR, they have uh, managed to come to terms at least to uh, to some extent with with their Nazi pasts. But once you get uh, in what is today Poland and and, um, uh, and Russia, the, the areas that used to be uh, Germany, Eastern Germany, like very few has been written about what happened in in these areas during the during the Third Reich. And I felt let's uh, let's start with just um, sort of like reestablishing, if you will, what uh, what happened there during the during the Third Reich. So that was. Indeed, sort of like a little bit extra that I really wanted to do, just set the scene for uh, what happened there between 1933 and 1944. Because if you want to talk about 1945, you need to have at least a little mm-hmm. bit of background of what happened uh, what happened before. And yeah, so that's what I'd like to do, uh, or what I did in my in my earlier chapter. So I'm I'm really happy that you that you picked up on, uh, uh, on my, my hidden agenda there and that you, uh, that you liked it. <laughs> Thanks for that. So, so do you, in that vein then, do you want to set the scene for us? The war's coming to an end, 44-45, um, in a matter of months, we think the regime's about to fall. Talk to us a little bit about the overall situation in Eastern Germany. Yeah, so what... Uh, 
I think like a lot of us will be at least a little bit of, uh, uh, aware of what is happening in Germany in the final year of the war. But what is happening in, in Eastern Germany in that respect is like similar and a little bit different. So uh, what you see is like bombing starts to, to happen also like more and more in, in Eastern Germany. Like, the, the Allied bombers, they become more advanced. They can fly a little bit further. Uh, the aerial defense over Germany uh, basically uh, shatters. So you have British bombers that go deeper and deeper into um, uh, Eastern Germany and start to bomb uh, Baltic ports, so like Stettin, uh, Danzig, and Königsberg. And so this is quite new for the people in Eastern Germany. Like they used to be uh, what is known as the like the Luftschutzkeller, they call it sort of like the uh, like the basements, the yeah, like the, the yeah, how can you say this in in in, in English? The, yeah, the air raid shelter, that is how I should call it, uh, the air raid shelter of, um, of Germany. So all the kids, for example, a lot of them will be sent to, to, east, uh, to eastern Germany uh, so that they are out of, the, um, out of the range for the bombers uh, of the Royal Air Force. But now there's, of course, another problem. Now you have the idea the Red Army is approaching from the east. So now the question is, um, are we going to expose our children to the uh, potential threat of the Red Army, or are we going to expose them to uh, the threat of Allied bombers? So you can understand what uh, uh, horrible choices like parents and mothers uh, have to make uh, dealing with these sort of things. But what I think is very important about Germany in 1945, and that is something that we, that we tend to forget a little bit, is like we tend to uh, treat it as a, uh, let's say, as a separate fighting. So Germany 1945 is uh, discussed very often in a, let's say, in an in a insular way. So, and what I mean by that is that we tend to talk about the Eastern Front 1941 to 1944, then uh, we stop everything what we're doing, and now we're talking about Germany in 1945, as if these are two completely separate things. But of course, um, the, the veterans fighting on the Eastern Front, they are retreating onto German soil. So for, uh, for them, it's a continuation of warfare. For most uh, soldiers fighting, for that matter, it's a continuation of warfare. These are not two separate wars. These are one, uh, one long series of battles, if you will. So, and that uh, really formed the basis for my book, uh, the, the ideas that, that underpin it. It is the idea that these men who have been fighting on the Eastern Front who have become completely radicalized, like in, they've been involved in massive acts of genocide. Now, how do these men, after three years of such brutal fighting, how do they react when they fall back on their own soil? And that is what formed the basis of my, uh, of my book. I love this. I mean, because we're actually going to be specifically concentrating on uh, Kunzberg. Haha, <laughs> said it right. Um, but I want to backtrack just a tiny bit, only because, I mean, I'm going to say both me and Marin looked at this and went, what? Like, what? Where is this? Come look at the German name, and obviously now it's not anymore, is it? So before we look at the final months, before we go really deep into this, because I'm really excited to do this, tell us a little bit about this city. I mean, why is it so significant, and where is it? 
Yeah, like Königsberg is, uh, I think for most of us, it's a very unknown city, which is an absolute shame because it used to be an incredibly, incredibly important city. It is where the philosopher uh, Immanuel Kant, for example, is born and he taught there his entire life. Uh, it is really uh, one of the most beautiful cities uh, of the German East um, and just an absolutely, absolutely important City. It's the capital of, uh, of Germany's easternmost province, East Prussia. And like as you already said, uh, uh, Alina, it doesn't uh, exist uh, as such anymore. Like today, uh, East Prussia is divided between Poland and Russia. But before you're thinking mainland Russia, no. It is actually what is known as an exclave. So uh, today it lies between Poland and Lithuania. If you were to look at the map of Europe, you will see that there's a tiny, tiny bit of Russia between Poland and Lithuania, and that is um, Oblast Kaliningrad. And Kaliningrad is what is uh, what used to be uh, Königsberg. So um, for me, important, of course, is the fact that East Prussia, as Germany's easternmost province, is the first to be reached by the uh, by the Red Army. And the Red Army soldiers. Uh, they look at East Prussia and they have been taught this is, let's say, the breeding ground for Prussian militarism. There's absolutely reviled uh, Prussians. That was the worst uh, uh, what, uh, what there was in their, uh, in their experience for them. Like uh, Prussianism, militarism and Nazism were almost interchangeable as, as words uh, at times. And so like the Red Army soldiers really passionately hated uh, the province and all it stood for. Uh, at the same time, Hitler also very actively taps into the idea of Prussian militarism and uh, uses this as a rallying call for, uh, for the population of East Prussia. So what you're ending up with, sort of like if you have to set a scene, uh, like the set piece is you have a heavily militarized uh, province uh, happily fortified and with people who are very eager to uh, defend uh, their province. Okay, so 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 the city was central. Um, it was it was a real focal point. But it's it, as you described the location being on that sort of crescent, working out towards what we think of just being Russia today. That means that it was far enough away from us to be quite a challenge. And yet we still bonded, didn't we, towards, what was it, middle, end of 1944? Yeah, like it's, it's bombed by the Royal Air Force twice in, in August 1944, in the, the end of August 1944. And I think it's also like worth reflecting what an endeavour this is. And I don't mean this to, to praise the Royal Air Force because um, they did, as, you know, as per usual, I do have to say, um, uh, mainly focused on... Uh, civilian targets, of course, there are uh, military targets hits as well, uh, but that is not the, the main importance of this, this raid per se. But what is interesting about it is this is an 11-hour round uh, yeah. flight. It is amazing how far this, um, uh, this round trip goes. And it is, again, I want to stress, it is August 1944, so the Red Army has basically just dipped its toe on, uh, on German soil. It is in East Prussia, 
and now East Russia is being bombed. If you want to have um, an equivalent, sort of like a, a way to compare it with, it is as if uh, the Red uh, the Red Army were to bomb Paris while um, uh, while the Allies are landing on D-Day. Like that is how uh, how insane that operation is. You have to fly all over uh, all over Europe, uh, drop your bombs, and go all the way back again. So this is like how far that operation goes. So it is it is quite uh, quite an endeavor, and uh, over the course of two horrible nights for the for the population of Königsberg. Their entire city is, is basically flattened and it is a deep scar that uh, exists still to this day uh, among the uh, East Prussian uh, refugees and expellees. It's, it's still very often talked about. It is uh, August 1944 is really sort of like the watershed month for East Prussia. It's, it's when their uh, capital is completely bombed and when uh, the first uh, Soviet troops start uh, arriving uh, in their province. So it's really the dead month where uh, East Prussia goes from like a, like a peaceful island uh, in the east that is not being bombed to being a war zone, and it basically goes like within the within the course of one month. So so just just catching up on that, what I mean, if they, if you're going to send over 180 Lancasters out there mm-hmm. at huge risk. Physically, yeah. just getting them there and back, let alone yeah. anything else. What was the single motivation at that point? Because late 1944, the writing's already on the wall. We know what's about to happen. Plans are afoot for June 1945. So what was the single motivation for saying, no, go and carpet bomb it? Well, like, the single motivation, I don't know, uh, you could say, like, because, like, obviously, like, like this ground is already like covered by you know like great scholars such as uh, Richard Overy. So like obviously I don't have to say too much about like morale bombing and, and these sort of things. There are some strategic uh, purposes because Königsberg is a um, um, like a, a very important stopover to the Eastern Front. Basically, if you want to get to uh, let's say uh, Leningrad earlier in the war, or to the middle section, sort of like on your way to Moscow, East Prussia would have been the stopover for all forces. So twice, like both in Poland uh, in 1939 and going into uh, the Soviet Union in 1941, East Prussia is the uh, springboard, uh, if you will, to go into these other countries. And this is incredibly, incredibly uh, important. So this is why. Uh, Königsberg is filled to the brim with warehouses uh, and um, hospitals and officer casinos and basically everything you can uh, imagine. It is. It has always been a very important fortress in the east, and it continues to be that in in uh, in the Second World War. So it's it is very well suited to be uh, like a. a, a uh, defensive position and that is uh yeah one of the main reasons why the royal air force says like yeah this is a legitimate uh, target and uh, why they uh, why they decide to to bomb it right i'm gonna add something here and i'm just gonna stress very very much to stress that i'm not putting the raf down at all in my next comment currently looking at the map uh, on my phone and i'm looking at how far 
uh, current Kaliningrad, which it is, is away from Warsaw. So you're saying August 1944, they're bombing the city. At the same time, the British Air Force could have sent help packages, airdrops, which they did. I'm not saying they didn't, but they could have made more of an effort to help the Poles in Warsaw at this point. If they're going and bombing a city, why can't they make more of an effort to go and help the Poles in Warsaw? Uh, like, well, like the, this is uh, obviously a question that among the Poles is uh, is discussed like like quite frequently. Like, um, um, they're like uh, the the troops being uh, dropped in Arnhem, for example, in uh, in September 1944, were troops that were uh, destined uh, to to event, uh, like to help in the in, in the case of an uprising in Warsaw. So, like all these men. Are now all of a sudden no longer dropped in Warsaw, but they are dropped in 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 Arnhem. So yeah, it's it is a matter of uh, prioritization, and uh, I think uh, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense for for the for let's say the nationalistic poles to um, to uh, to question the decisions that were being made. And uh, I completely understand why people uh, Polish people feel abandoned by. Both Stalin, who they felt uh, halted his tanks uh, just uh, east of of, uh, of Warsaw, on the one hand, and uh, the Western Allies on the other hand, really could have done more and were indeed uh, doing these uh, like uh, uh, these sort of things just just to their north. So, yeah, like gooda woulda shoulda is uh, of course uh, what. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, 
they're doing. So the whole concept of uh, law, you say, is being completely hollowed out on the Eastern Front. Both sides are guilty of this, I, I should say. It's just I'm focusing on, on the German uh, army, so this is where my, my expertise lies. So but what is important uh, within my research is that it's, this leads to a, a permanently changed mindset among the veteran corps uh, of the military. Like these are the men who have been since 1941 or sometimes even like 1939 or earlier have been involved in, in Germany's uh, wars. And they see that their behavior uh, can just brutalize without them being punished for it. So these men over the course of like five years of very heavy fighting and very brutal fighting and fighting that we would now consider well outside of the limits of what is uh, permitted uh, within a martial law or within any law for that matter. Um, they, uh, they start to consider that like, like the new normal, if you will. So, and it is with this mindset, this completely brutalized mindset after four years of very happy fighting, five years of happy fighting, that they fall back on, uh, uh, on their own soil. Curious to know, is it a common occurrence to find soldiers deserting from the German army at this point? This, I find, uh, uh, I find a hard question. So I will first give you a, what I consider to be the shortest possible answer, and that is no. So there are no soldiers uh, uh, deserting in very high numbers. But, uh, you know, being the academic that I am, of course, uh, we have to nuance this. So, uh, and the, the nuance that I want to introduce is by, by uh, looking at what it means to be a soldier and then what it means to uh, desert. Because, like, both these things are very important. Because, like, deserting soldiers within inverted commas, like, this is a, uh, starts to be a problem in 1944 and 1945. But let's start by considering what a soldier is. Um, the, the soldier in 1945, the German soldier, uh, is really no longer a, uh, a young man eager to, to, to fight, properly trained, well-armed, well-rested, uh, you name it, everything that what we today uh, is a soldier, let's say like your quintessential universal soldier. That is not uh, what you'll find on the um, uh, on the battlefield in 1944 uh, per se anymore. You see increasingly uh, that there are young kids. Uh, you have the establishment of uh, the Volkssturm, which is like a like a people's uh, people's militia uh, founded uh, in the autumn of 1944. Um, yes, like these are 16-year-old boys. These are 60-year-old men. And sometimes uh, even younger uh, than than 16, or even older than than 60. So uh, these are like the soldiers. And obviously, even though strictly speaking within the German uh, military hierarchy, they are part of that. So they are, in fact, soldiers uh, in the strictest sense of the word. But do they consider themselves to be soldiers? No. Like these. People are really just soldiers uh, in name. So, like, let's start by saying that that is um, what you have also as a very large part of the, the German military in 1944-1945. That is not to say that there are not still excellent 
uh, well-trained soldiers uh, as well, but the soldiers who will soon be uh, deserters uh, tend to be soldiers that come from, uh, from, from these ranks, so sort of like the, the second or third tier of soldiers. Which mm-hmm. brings us to, oh yeah, sorry. No, 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 go, go, go on, yeah. go on, I'm, I'm going gonna, gonna, gonna to come yeah. back, go on. So that brings us to like what it means to be a deserter, mm. because you are now a 55-year-old man. You're drafted in the Volkssturm, and your Volkssturm unit is incorporated uh, in the military command structure, because this happens at the final stage of the war. Like These are not two completely separate uh, fighting forces uh, in, in Eastern Germany. In Western Germany, it's a little bit of a different story. Like They tend to be a little bit more separate from one another. But uh, especially in East Prussia, they are really uh, incorporated within the military command structure. So now you are this 55-year-old man uh, who didn't uh, fight in the years prior. Now you're given uh, an old uh, Italian carbine with, with six bullets, and uh, they tell you, okay, well, best of luck to you and uh, to you and your friends. By the way, we also don't have a, a military clothing for you. Like in um, in most cases, you just got like like a sort of like armband uh, that just read the word Volkssturm. But sometimes you didn't even get that. And what does that mean? And this, I think, is very important, but very often forgot, is if you just have a gun um, and nothing that's, uh, distinguishes you as a soldier. You don't fall under military law. You are just considered to be a partisan uh, or anything like that. And that means that if you get caught, for example, by uh, a Red Army that is really not looking for an awful lot of nuance in 1944, 1945, you are just going to be shot as a uh, as a partisan. And uh, a lot of um, Volkssturm men, or a lot of these, these men, they, they know this. And uh, in some cases, there are no military uniforms, there are only uh, party uniforms. And again, like Volkssturm uh, soldiers, they know that being caught in a party u- a uniform uh, by the Red Army, uh, can you uh, like imagine, like, of course, like they know that this works like an absolute red rag. It's like these are the like same sort of uniforms that. Uh, the, the Soviets have been seen for years as the absolute signs of oppression and, and of horrible hardship. And now you are in this uniform uh, uh, fighting against them? Like, no, of course. So, like, what happens very often is that these uh, these men, they just take off their uniforms and know that they basically live, let's say, 10, 15 kilometers uh, down the street. So they prefer to go into hiding um with, with, with their family members or, or with, with whoever they, they find willing to, uh, to shelter them for, for the time being. So, and that is where we now end up with the deserting soldier, where both a soldier is something very different than we would think in the years prior. And also like deserting just has a very different meaning than, than in the years prior. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This, this is really interesting because it brings up the idea that, ironically, as the Germans are um, exploring, if I use the word abandoned uh, Bekämpfung, the, the idea of combating guerrillas and partisans and groups of resistance. Actually, by default, what they've done is almost created the environment in which small groups of people are forced to become seen as partisans and, and react accordingly and, and take their uniforms off and say, this is a problem. Yeah, what, what happens in, in East Prussia actually uh, aggravates exactly what you're, like what you're saying, because... The, the front line comes to a halt basically along the borders of East Prussia. But what um, the Red Army, of course, starts doing is that it starts dropping uh, like little uh, spy groups, uh, formerly or like often of former uh, German um, uh, like captured soldiers like in the years earlier who are, for example, like committed communists who want to uh, discourage other Germans from fighting. So they... Uh, the Red Army starts to, to drop uh, people behind uh, enemy lines. And this becomes really like a very scary thing to the, the German defenders of East Prussia because like now we have a situation where uh, you don't know if a German who you encounter, who is you know, like fairly well-trained militarily, if it's one of yours. So uh, in, in the autumn of 1944 and then, then like uh, going into the, the winter you get the situation where you have this constant like Wandenbekampfen as you say Wandenbekampfen and um, uh, yeah this happens there as well so what you have now is the situation where um, like people are like, looking for any sign of um, uh, of, of enemy behavior, and they start to be very, very suspicious of their uh, immediate surroundings, okay. and what you and, and what you and what you end up with is that uh, they start saying like everything, uh, everyone who is, for example, moving west, like uh, away from the front line, like they could potentially be a deserter, they could uh, potentially be like undermining the war effort. Like everyone who is moving away from the front line is looked at with suspicion. But what does this mean effectively is that any move to safety is by default considered suspicious. So this sets like a very dangerous uh, like precedent like going into uh, like into the final fight. So this is very interesting because what we're talking about is the ebb and flow of command, of potential, of perceptions. But let's bring this back a little bit to focus on the city, on Königsberg. Um, end of January 1945, we start to see the influence of a General Lash, don't we? Can you tell us a little bit about him and what happened? 
Yeah, so on uh, on 13 January uh, in the north of East Russia, uh, we see the start of the, the Soviet winter offensive. So uh, East Russia from uh, mid-January 1945 uh, is uh, invaded by a full uh, like Soviet force. It's, it's two full fronts plus uh, some uh, supporting armies uh, enter uh, East Prussia from the second half of January 1945 onwards. And within days, it is very clear, like, this is going south very, very quickly. And um, so what you see is like now people have to be evacuated, which is happening way too late. Like, um, this is unfortunately something that we won't be discussing today. It's one of the other chapters uh, of, the, uh, of the book. So, um, but yeah, like what you're seeing is that the uh, uh, um, Königsberg, what you see is that Königsberg is uh, slowly being like abandoned above all by the, by the party. So the party, and here you have a very important man, a Gauleiter, uh, Erich Koch. Erich Koch uh, used to uh, guide the evacuation measures but now decides, okay, Königsberg is getting a little bit too hot for me. I am moving uh, roughly 40 kilometers westwards to the, to the port city of, uh, of Pilau, which is a really a tiny city, but that soon starts to like overflow completely with, uh, with civilians. But what he does very importantly is he leaves uh, Königsberg. So, and this leaves a, a power vacuum and that power vacuum is uh, is being filled by the military. And the military uh, is, uh, at this point, um, is headed by a general by the name of uh, Otto Lasch. Otto Lasch becomes, uh, in this week, he becomes uh, like the fortress commander of Königsberg. Königsberg has been a fortress by that time already for a few months, actually. But what is important, and this is where German civilians or civilians in Königsberg start to notice that Königsberg is, in fact, a fortress, is that Lush introduces martial law. So from that point on, people notice, okay, it's truly properly a uh, fortress and it is under martial law. So, and Lush is one of these veterans who has been with uh, the German army since the, uh, since the beginning of the Second World War. Uh, he's uh, the, the officer actually captured Riga, so in 1941, so he is really at the forefront of the German military. He's quite literally the poster boy. Like there are uh, army calendars with him uh, on it. Uh, so like he is an important and, and well-known figure within the German military. His entire staff consists of um, hardened and experienced veterans who all uh, participated in very heavy fighting. Uh, they took part in the siege of Leningrad. Uh, they fought incredibly hard in Ukraine, for example. And twice, uh, one of Lush's uh, divisions is almost completely destroyed. Lush is a, like your quintessential Wehrmacht um, uh, officer. Like he has no, let's say, no scruples to uh, use his forces in the hardest possible way. So two of his divisions under his command are was completely annihilated. This doesn't reflect poorly on him at all. This is actually considered 
just something actually quite positive because it means like this is a general who knows how to uh, use his forces uh, to achieve mm. uh, a goal. So like this man, even though he's hard and um, under his command, thousands of, of soldiers die, he's considered to be uh, like an outstanding, outstanding soldier by the, by the, by the military command back in Berlin. So this is the man who is now tasked to, uh, to uh, head Königsberg's uh, fortress. Um, you said he had a military calendar. Uh, that's just stuck in... There was a military calendar with his face on yeah. it. Yeah, like, uh, well, like, there's uh, most... Uh, yeah, like, obviously, uh, Germany puts its soldiers in the Second World War on, a, on an absolute pedestal. So there would be different uh, army calendars. And um, one day I was doing research in the, in the Yad Vashem in, uh, in Israel. And uh, I was going through, through a military uh, calendar of like a calendar with, with military characters on there. And, and who is, uh, who is on, on one of these posters in, in July 1940, uh, I think 1944, I believe. Like, so exactly three years after he is, uh, he captures that city. There he is, like a picture of, of him together with um, the, uh, like like the, like one of the, the Nazi figureheads uh, in, in Riga at that point. Like they're standing side by side um, in, in Riga taking a, taking a parade. So in Riga, if you ever were to go there, there used to be even a street named after uh, Otto Lasch. It is in the, yeah, um, in, in one of the more fancy districts, as you can imagine, uh, just off the former Adolf Hitler Street. Like, fortunately, these names have been long, long changed. But, uh, uh, yeah, uh, it, it does show how important he was as a, uh, as a commander. Like, he is a very well-established uh, like person within them. German military, and it is on these credentials that he is asked to take up the, the position of, of fortress commander because they know that he can be absolutely ruthless and yeah, heartless and well, heartless basically. Although he will see that very, very differently. Yeah, he, he'd see it as being objective, he's got a job to do, his duty has got to be done, and yeah. the consequences of that are consequences. That's it, yeah. Like, he like. That is what makes him the really the, the quintessential uh, Wehrmacht soldier. It is like he's given an objective, and it's duty for duty's sake, uh, almost without thinking of the human consequence of his behavior. That is just absolutely not something that he's uh, concerned with. He has a task to do, and that task has to be uh, achieved. So, like uh, almost all. German uh, officers, he's not a great strategic thinker, but that he also doesn't consider that to be his task. He considers his task the task that he is given, um, and that's the task that he executes. And there uh, are indications that he does struggle a little bit uh, with that task, and that he doesn't necessarily see the purpose of that task. Like on occasion, he indicates that to his uh, to his staff that he uh, that he doubts it. Obviously. 
he doesn't he's not open about that at all but uh, to his uh, to an uh, in- intimate group of people he does like uh, like reflect on this a little bit but um, to 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 everyone uh, on the outside he will just say like no I'm going to be as hard as I as I have to be uh, and we have a task to fulfill and he will stick to that task until the very end. So we've got 16 to 60 year olds they're having to register for the Wehrmacht if not they're basically going to be executed but what I'm really interested in is about women at this point because they're stuck in this literally in a siege in a fortress what is happening with the women? Yeah what is incredibly uh, interesting and this is really the final step towards total war is Lush and uh, the highest remaining party official among uh, men known as uh, Kreisleiter Ernst Wagner together they uh, they uh, they have an appeal for fortress um, service so Festungsdienst where they say everyone in the city men women and child uh, like they specifically say that uh, has to contribute for four hours a day in this fortress service. So you have um, boys sometimes as as, uh, as young as eight who are asked to hold grenades with their sled or pass artillery coordinates or even help mine a bridge. Um, old uh, old women uh, are like helping, for example, uh, sew ammunition. A pouches, um, the grandfather of this little boy, uh, you know, like he was working in a tank repair a factory. And what they do with the entire civilian population is they, uh, as it were, have to earn the right to be defended. So for every woman, for example, who you can free up to do labor that could uh, uh, that doesn't have to be done anymore by a soldier. Like you can put another soldier on the front line. So these Volkssturm units, uh, for example, they are very active um, in uh, uh, in Königsberg. But for every um, Volkssturm unit, there also tended to be uh, a, a little uh, a room with uh, with women who are like mending the socks and like cleaning the uniforms. Like these are or they're saying like yeah like these these rooms with these women like they have to like be part of the 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 command structure of uh, like a Volkssturm unit. But what you also see of course like women take up an, like uh, basically almost 100% of the uh, of the hospital roles that are there. So uh, of course there are military doctors, but uh, all nurses and everything auxiliary roles they are all taken up. By, by women, uh, so but everything you can uh, imagine that could potentially be done by a woman is being done uh, by a woman. Uh, what this does mean, of course, is that on the other side of the front line, uh, the, the Red Army uh, also notices this and, and, and sees this as absolute proof that uh, everyone in Germany is willing to uh, contribute to, to the defense. So like, to them, um, also, the concept of civilian is completely diluted. So when the Red Army eventually uh, enters Königsberg, they uh, do not really bother to differentiate between uh, women, uh, men, 
uh, when it comes to what constitutes a fighter. And this means that also thousands of women from Königsberg are later being sent like to, to the Urals and like, uh, uh, like very far away, just in a, in a very similar way as uh, German, uh, re let's say, regular prisoners of war. Because uh, they did, in the eyes of the Red Army, contribute to the defense and they are not at all innocent. Like obviously, women themselves, they, they feel that they are coerced, which they were. Um, but, um, yeah, like, nevertheless, like, they are now considered to be like, part of the, the overall defense of, of Königsberg. So instead of helping uh, women and children and elderly evacuate, like, in any uh, significant way, the, uh, the German army keeps a very, very large part of civilians, German civilians, uh, in the siege. Uh, so, yeah, like, and this will eventually contribute to very, very large casualty numbers. So when the, uh, the Red Army finally storms the city in early April uh, 1945, it uses uh, two and a half thousand uh, planes. So that is a full third of the entire Red Air Force. So uh, that basically bombs the city um, really into, into smithereens, if you will. And, uh, yeah, you can imagine what this does uh, to, to the casualty numbers because, like, not everyone has uh, as easy access to, to, to a bunker. So, like, um, the, the casualty numbers absolutely climb to horrible heights. So, so this is interesting because it leads us back to the question, what, what, what impact did this have on the court martial process and how did that develop? So, in Königsberg, what you see is that um, there are a few different um, laws starting to exist side by side because you have uh, the civilian law, which is still like partly like in place. Uh, you have uh, the laws by uh, specific SS courts. You have the, um, the like the, the summary uh, courts and the summary executions. So there are quite a lot of different, as they say, like jurisdictions sort of like existing in Königsberg at the time. And for civilians, it is very hard to sort of like keep track under which jurisdiction they, they really fall. And this has absolutely horrible uh, like, like consequences because whereas a German soldier could be put in front of a court-martial and... Um, might be sentenced to like a, like a prison sentence or extra guard duty because he was doing something wrong. Um, German civilians uh, tended to be uh, tried uh, like uh, by some records if they were tried. And then the, the sentence tends to be either uh, death, uh, like a death sentence or uh, all charges are dropped. So it is quite clearly it's 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 just a black and white thing there like there's there's only two there's only two sentences uh, like for for the, these uh, uh, like like in in these courts uh, martial and those would have known that would they? they they'd have known that it was either i'm going to get off scot-free or that's it i'm i'm to the top well uh like again 
I'd, I'd like to, to, to stress that um, just as today, like, we don't know exactly how law works because, like, it's just, you know, like, we, we, we live our lives and uh, we act in it. In, 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 yeah, so, like, 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 none of us sort of, like, voluntarily start to read our laws. Like, why, why on earth would, right? And it's, you know, like, not different then. So, like, you behave in a specific way. And now, all of a sudden, it means that, say you're entering the house of your neighbor, you know, left in January 1945 to flee the city. You think, I'm doing this because I have the suspicion that my neighbors left some food in this house and my children are hungry. This is very common to think. Like, this is not, uh, yeah, like, out of, out of the ordinary. So, if you were to do that, in a civilian context, like or like in a peacetime context, or in a great many contexts, and you were caught, you were you were being tried for stealing, right? So, and you might get sort of like a slap on the wrist, or maybe like a, a, a week uh, prison sentence, or something like that, and that that would be the end of it. Um, in uh, in a fortress, in a besieged fortress. Like, this is a plunder, and this is punishable by that. And uh, so, like, what you see is a lot of people who are just absolutely not used to uh, this very strict uh, military rules that are being implemented are now just being executed in massive numbers just simply because they don't know what to, uh, yeah, what to expect, really, and how to behave, because they have never been introduced to it. Like, to them... The, like the Soviet offensive comes just as sudden as it comes for for everyone uh, for everyone else, and uh, yeah, like that change in mindset that is expected of them. Like it cannot happen overnight, but it is expected yeah. of them. Yeah. So these people, they should have actually been evacuated at the end of the day. They decided to stay, and now they're dying in in just horrifically high numbers, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, like. Decided, obviously, it, it, it's, a, it's a word that should be be treated with care because, like, a they are uh, like uh, ordered, so like they won't have a choice, and also uh, in case that they have a choice, because like some women uh, or children or elderly do have, in theory, a choice. But then, what is your choice? Um, they have been told, if you uh, evacuate, we can no longer take care of you. Like, the conditions in, like, refugee camps in Germany, like, they were known to be absolutely uh, appalling. Say you're evacuated to uh, Schleswig-Holstein, which is, uh, like, like in, in the neighborhood of Denmark, you know that this area is about to be overrun by the Americans. So, like, yeah, okay, so then, then what is your alternative? Like, you're going uh, from, from being almost overrun by, uh, by, by, the, by the Soviets into being overrun by the Americans now. Americans may indeed be a little bit better, but it still means that you have to go uh, through winter uh, and in East Russia in, uh, uh, in January 1945, it was minus 20 degrees with, you know, with the wind, wind chill uh, factor to, to boot, really. So it's it is absolutely, absolutely horrible. It was one of the most brutal winters uh, in, uh, in, in living memory. So, like, that just makes it all so, so much worse. So... Uh, these are the conditions, these are your starting conditions. Like, at least you know in Königsberg, you still have food at your disposal, uh, you have a, a roof over your head, uh, 
yeah, you know that you might be uh, attacked very soon, but you're alive, you're warm, and you're with your entire family sort of intact. So uh, now your husband is, you know, five to ten kilometers away from you, sort of like fighting at the front. Uh, so he cannot leave. So if you are leaving with your kids, for example, you know that you're also leaving your husband behind. So yeah, like sometimes they they have the choice to go, but are you going? Like th th that's a, that's a very different question. So uh, yeah, some some people they just uh, instead of that they just decide like okay, like better undergo the end of the war uh, in a, in a familiar place than uh, just like on the streets where we might die, where no one is taking care of us, and where we just have to hope that all goes well. Here, we know than, than the unknown. My goodness, there's there's immense conflict out there. It's going to be even worse. Like we now at least know how to deal with this horrible situation here, and uh, you know, like we're still alive, we're still together-ish. Um, but yeah, like uh, if we now go on the streets, uh, it might just all be very different. So like this uh, eventually really ensures that. Uh, a lot of people stay behind in Königsberg, and when the, the final storming finally happens, this uh, yeah, this culminates in just uh, in in like one of the worst tragedies on the like like in in Eastern Germany. So, so this this feels like almost um, the start of the final chapter for Königsberg, and at that point, I think that um, listeners buy the book to find out what else happens. But yeah. what g give us an introduction to the book? Tell us. What it covers and um, what your plans are next. So the book uh, is "Violence in Defeat" is the name. Like, Violence in Defeat to um, the Wehrmacht on German soil, 1944-1945, and I think we covered already like uh, quite a lot of uh, of what's in the book. Uh, like most importantly, the question like what happens if the German army falls back on its own soil uh, after having fought for many years uh, in a very Brutalizing, or and what does this do with the with the civilian population which they are out like defending? So like that is the question that I set out to to answer. Like as Alina said earlier, uh, I did also just uh, wanted to use that opportunity to talk more about East Prussia, which is really uh, even though I think a lot of people might have heard the name once, like that is really all uh, that people like sometimes know about it. So, like, I wanted to use the opportunity to talk about East Prussia. Uh, I'm very interested also, like, in urban warfare. So, like, one of the chapters, like, deals with what it means uh, to be, like, part of, like, fighting in a, in, in a fortress, like, in a so-called festung. And, like, that is, for me, is very important, like... Um, urban conflict. Uh, yeah, like, urban warfare, like, um, in conflict. That is, yeah, like, one of the chapters really, like, focuses on that. Um, because I think there's a lot of, of like misconceptions when it comes to fighting in, a, in an urban uh, landscape uh, in the Second World War. And I think this is also very important for today because um, like a pitched battle, like it becomes like, like a rarity, like, like nowadays. But when it happens, uh, it is very often in an urban, uh, uh, urban setting. And uh, yeah, so like I find that incredibly, incredibly Fascinating. So that is why I um, like devoted quite some uh, some energy to 
it's piqued my interest already, and I'm going to get a copy of the book because I've, I've got, as some people will know, I've got a penchant for, for urban conflict too. Yeah, um, yeah. Dad, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege to, to listen to you talk. And, um, yeah, buy the book. And don't forget to head to our bookshop where you can grab yourself a copy. Thank you so much, Baz. Yeah, yeah thanks, uh, thanks, ladies. I really, I thoroughly enjoyed it. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look, do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well, and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.